weekly waits Will goes on dates and Hayes is late But we're still mates and as of late We educate and postulate about the gym I lift more than both of you combined Oh yeah, this is Weekly Waits with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 34 of Weekly Waits Today Will and I are going to be doing an episode about things we've changed our mind about so stuff we used to believe that don't necessarily apply anymore but first we're going to start off with a couple of reviews which we haven't read any reviews in a few weeks and we've got two new ones so from kelvin kenny this monday he says love the podcast but it kills me that will pronounces execute as execute and manages to say execute at least once every week also that will manages to weave in egregious every week as well no normal person talks like that I had another word that I was saying a lot. And I'm trying to remember what it was. It was really funny. It wasn't egregious. It was some oh um it wasn't like wherefore. It was something equally nerdy. Ergo. I said ergo like six weeks in a row at one stage and I was like, I gotta stop that. That's, That's a bit another thing I don't like about you is you talk like you're writing an essay. Yeah, I've always said why well, use a small word when a diminutive one will do. Okay, Alex hated that joke. I don't think he's quite gotten it. He's gone for the thesaurus on his phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> thesaurus is a dinosaur that tells you what words are similar to each other. <laughs> dinosaur. <laughs> All right, so today's topic is... Do you want is, to read the other review as well? Um, what is it? Oh, that's old mate. This is actually really funny. So the title of the review is Sumo is Cheating, and it's from MJ Cheats. And it says, I am deeply offended. Five stars. <laughs> She's fantastic. She's offended, but she likes the show. Yeah, so I like that. That's good. Um, to be honest, as a show, I like that we can be a bit of a polemic, which is to say, Alex, that we divide people into two poles. You know, we yeah, we give people an argument, divides opinion. Because I'd rather be thought provoking than just you know, like boring and serving layups to a captive audience. What do you think about that? Layups are good though. Layups are guaranteed points. Yeah, but that's my point. Is like. Three pointers are more points than layups, and you got to risk it a bit for the biscuit. No risky, no biscuit, you know. Yeah, that's the last basketball coaching analogy you'll you'll use. Yeah, uh, I don't know, sick man. To, I just sick, sick to powerlifting coaching. Will I actually had to coach basketball at school for a bit when I was in year twelve? I'd mentor year seven kids. Did you get like the, the H's? I just said, boys, get out there and swing for the fences. <laughs> <laughs> Alex is absolutely mortified. Today's topic is things we've changed our mind about. Um which is not enormously dissimilar to Mistakes in Training, um, which is an episode that we did way earlier. But where in episodes of training, Alex and I were more talking about things about our specific approach to lifting ourselves. Um, things have changed our mind about. We're trying to more conceptually talk about from the coach's shoes, um, you know, what's changed in how we structure our programs and what we want to see from our lifters. And I guess also the things that have led us to change our mind because it's one thing to say I used to think X and now I think Y but it's another thing to actually say this is the reason and hopefully again a few of you can probably skip the mistakes in appraising your own training and planning that we've made um, and the first one that came up immediately when we thought about this was just how hard training has to be and even when I was reviewing programs that I used to write for people while thinking about this show, the first thing I thought was actually most of this is pretty good, but it's just like too hard. So Alex, do you want to maybe yeah, start us off with why and how you've changed your mind in that respect? Yeah, I think um, as a young coach, I used to always believe that the biggest driver for progress was training volume and 
training intensity. So if you were able to do a lot of training volume at a relatively high intensity, you would always improve. And, you know, that is true to a certain degree, but there has to be other things considered there. And I think um, I used to just kind of let quality fall by the wayside in some of my lifters. And, you know, more was always better. So, you know, I guess one way to think about it would be like chasing rep PBs every week and trying to beat the previous week. So like, let's say, let's say you were to do like 150 for a set of 10 or three sets of 10. The following week, you'd have to do more. Otherwise, it would be a failure, regardless of how difficult that three by 10 was. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. And I think, um, in like, I completely agree. And I very much felt the same way. I was sort of like, I sort of thought of overload um, overload more as conceptually meaning that like you had to do more than you had done before rather than thinking that training stimulus had to be sufficient to actually like promote an adaptation. And that's something we've said a few times um, on the podcast. Uh, I'm trying to think of the things that led me to feel that way. And there's probably, there's three big factors that I can think of. Um, one was probably just the naivety of being a beginner and when i was relatively early to training it it almost was like if you just trained really hard you would get better and if you trained really harder usually you did get better at least to a degree and so that probably carried into the way in which i thought about training others which was you know man if these people just sucked it up and trained harder they'd get better so that's one i think that comes from you know i was the same as you is that we actually like training hard yeah 100 percent um and if you if you weren't doing you know everything that you could possibly do you weren't doing enough and that's the way i used to think it as well yeah big time and particularly because there were enough times where i would do like you know i remember i ran like a really bastardized version of the mad cow program if anybody knows about that one it's like a it's a three-day full body program um it's got a tiny bit of undulation to it it's actually kind of well structured but you do a hard three by five on the monday for squats and then you do, um, I think it's two five or two three slightly heavier, and then an eight slightly lighter on the following Friday, and then you hit what was your two by three for three fives the next Monday, and so on. So it progresses weekly. And there were the amount of times where I actually hit a three by five that I thought was going to kill me difficulty wise, and then did my two by three, and then the next week was able to hit a three by five, you know, two or five kilos heavier. Um, was like astonishing to me. And so I, that probably led me to partly believe that if you just suck it up and work harder, you'll get more. Um, and that also it's kind of expected that you can progress like that forever. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, it wasn't like I felt like I was within myself for a large portion of that. It was literally, it was literally a triumph of will, if you'll excuse capital the will. pun. Capital, yeah, capital will. Um, <laughs> but mate. anyway, so that was one factor that probably influenced my thinking in that respect. And there were two more. One was the um, the increasingly popular, I don't want to say opinion because it's relatively well supported in evidence that higher volumes um, lead to greater gains in hypertrophy and strength. Although I have a few caveats in the way in which I think about that now. But, you know, that was sort of a bit of soundbite science was people were saying, you know, do more work, get more gains. Um so there was that there was me thinking well when i work harder i can do more than i thought i could and the science says when you work harder you get more and then later probably after i'd actually started to think with a bit more nuance i remember mike israel who i've always found a very interesting person um to listen to he 
you know, he was sort of coming to popularity talking about concepts like maximal recoverable, uh, maximum recoverable volume and so on. And I was listening to him sort of talk about how, you know, there's a minimum threshold that you have to pass to do to get better. And then up until a point doing more work is better until it's too much and you can't recover. And so then I started thinking, well, basically, if people can survive doing more work, they ought to do more. And again, my thinking of that's my thinking on that's deepened a lot. And I think the way in which I said that also probably slightly misrepresents his position as well, because it is more nuanced than that. But those three, those three things together, the experiential thing, the very shallow appreciation of science, and then hearing figures in the fitness industry talk about the returns that you get from doing more work, um, all basically made me think if I do more, I'll get more. For sure. I think another reason for, for me thinking that every session must be so hard is because of the training split that I used to run. Mm-hmm. So it used to be Monday Monday squats followed by lower body volume and that would be my only leg work for the week. So if I'm only hitting, my or well, my thinking was if I'm only hitting legs once in a week, I need to absolutely demolish myself versus splitting them up over two or three sessions. Mm. Um, and the same would apply for chest work, back work. Um, shoulders arms etc um, and I think yeah I think that level of thinking is is very short-sighted and if you actually zoom out a little bit and you think like you know we spoke about this ad nauseum on the long um, long-term development podcast but if you think if you zoom out and you think about you know making just a small amount of progress for a long time you'll be able to stay in it for longer and if you chase those short-term like if you really really push yourself and chase the short-term progression you know in 12 weeks 10 weeks 16 weeks whatever you're going to get better in the short term and then something's going to happen you're going to stall yeah and i think um this is actually similar to a discussion i had with a client this morning which i'll relay eventually but i um i think partly for me as well there was a there was a um there was a bit of confusion in the way i conceptualized training which is that because i because i valued hard training and i like to train hard and I had seen returns from doing training that was near maximal. I felt that training should be almost an exercise in testing myself perpetually. And so it was hard for me to dissociate improvements in my actual capacity to lift weight from what I had done in that training session. And now very much when I train, I'll do something and I'll think, you know, I did those three sets of five, say, really well, albeit at RP7, say but I executed them really well, that's progress. At the time, it was more like if those three sets of five aren't more than I had previously been able to do, there's no real evidence that I had gotten better. And again, I can see why that's defensible if you're really sort of superficial in your thinking. But because I thought you basically had to do more and see more all the time to be sure that you were getting more, I was just like, I basically like boxed myself into a corner. I had to actually do more all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I still notice that with how you even talk about your own training now. When I give you, you know, for instance, I'm coaching Will at the moment, and if I give you something that, you know, maybe it's an RPE 7, right? Mm. For Will, that's really easy because he's used to his whole life pushing things to nine and a half, ten. 10. Mm. And if you say like, oh, yeah, you know, like I could have done 6, well, it's like, yeah, you could have, but you didn't have to, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. But even so, like... It's like th- you're, still, you're still in that thinking of like, you could have done so you should have done you know it's you not you don't think that anymore but it's still like it's still there yeah it's not so much could have as should have could have therefore should have in my head it's like i use my appraisal of how much more could i have done what's the quality of this relative to what i would have expected myself to do to gauge my progress um which is slightly different but it is still coming from that place of like you know fuck i wouldn't mind actually just letting rip and trying yeah that's right it's like almost like the way we used to train was every training session was a testing session it was like 
all right, what am I capable of today? Like, what can yeah. I do today? And then, you know, as soon as you recover from that, it's all right, what can I do again? Yeah, and that's very gratifying provided you're progressing and then very not gratifying when you stop progressing and things start hurting. Yeah, and when you just get so tired that you literally, you know, can't do your last warm-up. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to say that hadn't happened, but I actually do distinctly remember there was a while in which I hit, I think my best AMRAP on squats was something like 200 for five. And I was really proud of it at the time. That was actually one of the best squat sets, like execution-wise, I'd ever done and stayed that way for a long time. I've never done 200 for five. <laughs> yeah, and you're way and stronger than... I'm probably 20 kilos stronger than you were at the time. It wouldn't be far off. But I did a really good 200 for five. And then I remember maybe two or three months down the track in training after pushing myself way too hard, I had to do like 200 for a top single and I missed. And I like that was just so shattering to me then. Um because again, to me, it was still very much like, if I can't do this almost every day, then am I stronger? I think that was back in the Willoughby Fitness first days, wasn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, I made an absolute knob of myself uh, having to dump a bar over my head onto those safeties that are not really well equipped to cop 200 kilos. Um, anyway, uh, lesson learned. So I guess the next question is, why don't you like any longer think that harder is better? Because I've um, experienced it with myself and with, with clients that it can be okay in the short term to push for those extra progressions. And, you know, these these things can be saved for an important competition or something like that where you really want to try and get the most out of yourself. But if you do it too often and, um, yeah, too often and too hard and just constant, you can just dig yourself into too big of a fatigue debt and you can't get out of it. And you're going to require, like, a deload or you're going to have to start an intro again or you're going to hurt yourself. Um, and I've had that happen to myself and I've had that happen to numerous clients and in at, in the moment, I didn't realize what was going on but looking back, I can definitely say that like that was the cause. Yeah, I think um, like entirely agree just from experience. I keep seeing people doing training that's, it's not I mean, easy is the wrong word because it's still effortful and mindful and people still chew through plenty of work but like on a set-by-set basis training that's not very hard mm. i keep seeing people do training that's not very hard and getting really good um and like there are peaks and troughs you know sometimes sessions are really hard so there was that um but i also more and more have started to think of the amount of work you do as being you know as having to sort of surpass a stimulus threshold to promote adaptation and the way I described it to a client this morning, which I alluded to earlier, was um, was say, in her instance, I think I was saying, say you could do 100 kilos today for five on your deadlift. Um, you know, if you do 90 for five in week one of a cycle, and that's enough to promote a bit of adaptation, and say it makes you, you know, 1% stronger. And so, you know, you could do 90 for five, but and that's improved your capacity to 101 for five. And then the next week you do 95 for five and you get another kilo-ish of gains out of it. And then, you know, so on, you do 97 and then you do 100. By the time you actually surpass your previous your previous training capacity, you're a little bit ahead, ahead of where you were. Um, and the marginal return sometimes on doing things harder than that threshold is not so much greater that you actually accelerate faster. And part of the art of writing programs is to is to figure out what the minimum dose is, is to actually get somebody progressing or keep them progressing and what and whereabouts you get the maximum marginal return and when um when i was saying that like the ways in which i viewed volume um and difficulty of training has sort of colored a bit i used to think 
more volume is better um, until you can't recover from it. And I now think that rather than it being sort of like a like some type of a straightish line or curved line up towards a peak and then a sharp drop off, I now think it's more sort of like an inverted U in that there is there is about an optimum volume for people to do <coughs> to do within a set um, within a session and then de- depending on how long it takes to recover from that much work there's probably about an optimum volume for people to do per week where they get the most marginal return on unit of work and there'd, there'd be lots of things that actually influence that but if you're doing a little bit too too much more than that there's not a huge downside until you start to like accumulate extra fatigue and get worn out and if you're a little bit away from the peak of that curve again you progress but not as fast as you could have but the art is in really sort of finding finding that level of stimulus that keeps people ticking over and sort of oscillating around around the peak of that curve most of the time um, rather than really trying to drive them off the end of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned a good thing there is that keeping people ticking over is really, really important. Back um, only a few years ago, I used to sort of buy into the idea that there would be three hard weeks and the third week you're absolutely rooted and then you have a fourth week deload. Mm. Whereas now I tend to keep things a lot more conservative and I tend to use deloads only really when I have to, which has to, which happens to be like you know every ten or twelve weeks. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's a lot more total weeks of uh, of effective training versus less weeks of really really hard training and 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 less weeks of nothing really. Yeah, I think um, something that I used to do and I still do here and there is when I like when I get a new client, I like to ask them, you know, what are your best rep efforts in a few ranges. And then when I'm plotting out training cycles and things, I try and have them sort of intercept those those best ranges, um, but only really like as necessary. Like I don't, you know, if you can hit a new PB one RM without setting a PB three by five on the way, then there's no need necessarily to do so. But what I used to do was if somebody said, well, my best say three by five was a hundred kilos, I'd think right, well, you know, in your three weeks of fives, your third week's going to be a hundred and two and a half kilos because that means you're doing more and work back from there um with less of an emphasis on the quality of work and yeah so i'd go you know whatever it was like 92 97 102 to ensure that they'd made progress whereas now i'm i'm much more easy on that like i use those things as signposts to sort of see how their rep efforts are going and whether they're progressing but it's much it's much more intuitive and much less set in stone that you actually have to lift more to have gotten more um there's something else i had to say on that exact note oh yeah um, and the other thing that the other thing that's probably changed in the way in which I do that is rather than doing it over such short periods of time is I'm happy to back cycle a really long way <laughs> before I actually intercept um, intercept those PBs because I'll use myself as an example. I did this um, in my sort of six months of training with no competition goals. Um, I like once I'd started to realize you only had to really do enough work to promote like to promote getting better not to necessarily set a pb all the time i was able to work back with weights that i hadn't really touched for working sets for ages and ages and advance from there and it was it wasn't until like month five of that sort of six months of training where i'd plotted out roughly where i wanted to go that i hit that i touched like a squat rep pb or a bench rep pb or a deadlift rep pb but all the numbers that i lifted were way way ahead by the end of it because I'd just done lots of productive work at not just sub-maximal, like less than I could have done for those, like for, you know, like those sets and reps, but like way sub-maximal, like sub-maximal of 
my rep PRs and in some instances sub-maximal of literally the exact same working loads I'd done when I was weaker. So like really easy training and it's still summed up to a really big lot at the end because it's sort of like all of the work that you do provided that it's stimulative enough contributes to the end result and that's more how I think of it now. Yeah, absolutely. You were able to get to those rep PBs by doing the work that, you know, was a little bit easier. Yeah, and so... And if, if you are someone out there who trains really really hard all the time and you're constantly pushing rep maxes and you know you're pushing yourself as hard as you can try and take a step back for you know 16 weeks or so take a few steps back and give yourself time to build back into those and i guarantee you'll progress better yeah um jp hasn't had his weekly shout out yet but he loves to say fuck jp there's your weekly shout out but he also (laughs) like he also loves to say boring matters um yeah and and boring really does matter because, you know, people get into powerlifting. We say this all the time because they like to lift heavy weights and hit PBs. But oftentimes it's all the stuff you do that is not worthy of posting on your Instagram unless you keep a compulsive training log of every training session you've done, Alex. Um, yeah, the stuff that you do that's not really worth sharing is often actually the stuff that sums up to you doing the things that are worth sharing at the end. And if you really can't bear to go that long without posting like an impressive training video on Instagram, then you should get a French bulldog and then you can post it on Instagram very all good, the time. Very good for engagement, having a French bulldog. Oh, oh mate, so good. Shout out Digby. Um, shout out Ace. Shout out Digby and Ace. Yeah, so so that was that on actually. That, on that note, Digby and Ace weekly weight t-shirts coming soon. Yeah, um, yeah we stay actually... Stay tuned. For once, this isn't a troll. Normally, we joke about our commercial um, our commercial ambitions, but we are going to bring out some weekly weights, shirts, um, and socks. We got a bit of a logo happening. Um, shout out Brandon Tan, our friend who's shout working out Prince, on it. The Prince. Um, I'm going to say this in advance because Brandon and I are going to have a GameCube showdown soon <laughs> on Super Smash Brothers Melee, which neither of us have actually played. I'm going to absolutely obliterate you. You can, yeah, you can choose the conditions. I'm still going to annihilate you. And I'll literally come on weekly weights and apologize to the people if if you beat me between now and when this is released. Um, yeah, I'm going to smash him. But thanks cool. for also designing the shirts. So <laughs> um, I wrote heaps of notes. Oh, man, I wanted to get heaps nerdy on volume. Guys, if you want to hear me get nerdy about training volume, let us know. Maybe we'll do a separate episode talking about it because it's a bit sciencey and thick. But while Alex is away, I want to have Luke Tullick on so we can nerd out big time. Thank um, God I get to miss that one. Yeah, Alex really doesn't give a shit. He's just like, oh, just lift big, get big. Um, but yeah, <laughs> Luke and I might do that. So forget about that. Um, another thing that came under the difficulty of training um, was the difficulty of peaking because this is this is one that's really changed in how I think about stuff as well. And when I brought it up, Alex was like, fuck, I wish I'd thought of that, as usual. Um <laughs> He's getting a roasting today. The reason we don't film the Weekly Weights podcast when we record it, by the way, is because there's so much like, you know, swings and misses and things that happen on, off camera and yeah, rude gestures and stuff. But <laughs> Alex is, he's very pissed off. Um, how hard peaks should be. So even when I started coaching, I was like pretty cautious about pushing, pushing people's loads in their peaks much above openers because i'd read so many articles on like elite fts and stuff saying that you shouldn't really need to handle much above an opener maybe up to a second but what i did do that i think was a mistake was i'd make the back off work still hard um 
you know, I get like again along the same lines as what I was saying before of like, you know, if you could do more for fives, why don't you just do more for fives and get more? So, you know, so if three weeks out somebody was doing a heavy three by five, then it wasn't like it wasn't like a three by five, ten percent less than their best possible set of three by five, so they could do it perfectly. It was like the hardest three by five they could do, and then the hardest three by four they could do, and then the hardest three by two or whatever, and then a taper. Um, so I yeah, made back off work way harder than it had to be. And also along the same lines, I was like, well, they only need to handle their opener to be prepared because heavyweights are really fatiguing. But your opener is something you should be able to do for three or four. So, you know, they should probably hit it for a set of like three, um, which is really hard as well. Whereas now I think of peaking more in particularly those final few weeks as like preparation to have people handle heavy loads really well. And so if anything, my peaks get on a set-by-set basis more submaximal. Um, it's just the loads get heavier. And so I would, you know, if somebody's going to handle an opener, they hit an opener for a single, maybe a double here and there, but like usually a single. And likewise, if they're doing a three by five, it's not a three by five that's excruciatingly hard. It's a three by five where I'm like, this is going to be hard enough to prepare them for the load that they have to hit next week. Um, and I think of peaks in like a stepping stone fashion of, will you be prepared to hit the next heavier load? So is it hard enough? But not so hard that it's going to really like really bugger them and so if if i think doing a three by five will be too hard i'll just drop the reps or something so that they actually do really quality sets alex yeah i have the same sort of um experience as you did i guess my programs now um the the back off work is way 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 easier than it was previously like i'm talking pre in previous peaks that i've that i've written you know first set of the back off to nine then a nine and a half then a ten you know yeah. like you've got literally nothing left by the time you finish you know maybe a three by three or a three by five or whatever um whereas now it's like you your third set of whatever it is is you know a seven and a half or an eight and that really keeps the quality of reps higher and it prepares prepares the movement pattern and it keeps you i guess injury free and helps manage fatigue and etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so I there's think- a, yeah there's a, lots and lots of reasons why we've I guess erred on the side of conservative now versus in the past. Mm, I think I'll sorry. I have another note I want to talk about, but yeah, reasons why we err on the conservative side. So I've already said like you need to be prepared, and so one thing one thing that I've sort of come to appreciate more now is that like the fresher that you are, I mean to a degree, but like the fresher that you are when you come in to handle your heavier loads, the better you execute them. And it's good execution of heavy loads that actually has you prepared to then execute well on the platform because with your second and third attempts on platform, small deviations in technique don't mean a grinder normally. They usually mean a miss, at least for better lifters. And so you want to see people lifting loads where they have to strain and challenge themselves to fight errors but are actually able to do so successfully. And so, um, and so yeah, when I write my, when I, when I write my peaks... I want to see sort of reductions in fatigue as the loads go up so that people do their lifts well, not just have them lift a heavier load worse so that they've touched a heavier load. Do you know what I mean? 100%. Um, I think um, when I write the four-week block leading into a competition, I I write it conservatively in the hope that they smoke their, their top work and then I actually give them an extra set. Yeah, 100%. And that's something that I've been doing a lot lately, especially with the people that I work with in person, if they smoke their first set of a single, then I'll give them a little bit more on the on the second one because 
I'm not after that load to move well. I'm after a certain RPE. Like when I write the particular program, I'm expecting a certain RPE. And if I don't achieve that RPE, then I'm going to have to give them more or less than what I've written. Mm. And yeah, similarly, like I have, I have a few people who will do, you know, two or three ramping singles, particularly on squat and bench. I don't do it as often on deadlifts because deadlifts are more conservative. But yeah, two or three um, ramping singles for squats and bench. And yeah, likewise, if, if, you know, their first single's great and their second single's great, I'll just say, you know, bump up your third one by two to five kilos as well. But again, that's reflecting that they're moving well, not so, yeah, not so much that I want it to be really hard. It just means they're ahead of schedule. And just like you, I now write conservatively with the hope that they will get ahead of me. And if they don't, then all that happens is your conservatism is vindicated. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess, I guess like in the past, I would have written the plan as if they would be ready for whatever the lofty goal is versus now I'd probably write the plan 5% easier and then if they were ready for the goal then give them a little bit extra in the last week or two yeah absolutely sort of get their confidence up again yeah the thing I was going to bring up earlier was um, was overreaching and I remember when I started powerlifting I very like overreaching was kind of fetishized it was like that thing where you thought hey my peak has to be really hard like smash me and then when i taper like i'm going to super compensate so much and then you know i'll be way better than in my training and in my experience people really get like you know two to five percent from peaking like and probably at the lower end of that most of the time it's not um you don't you don't super compensate and suddenly lift 10 percent more than you could have in training unless you're 160 kilos yeah if you're 160 kilos and you squat a thousand pounds so you're ray williams then like you probably do get a lot more out of a taper than your average. But like if you're a if you're a middleweight male or female of intermediate through you know lowly advanced training status, you should probably plan to get two to five percent from your peak. And if you plan for two percent and five percent's there, then that's your lucky day and you can push it harder on the platform. I guess a lot of those those old sort of sayings of you know, all the old concepts of powerlifting come from where powerlifting began and who popularized powerlifting which is often the bigger guys mm. so us as smaller people and most people who are listening to this podcast are probably under 100 kilos these things don't really necessarily apply to you so you have to be smart in the way you apply these things like if you're expecting you know i think chad Wesley smith talks all the time about when he first what's what's his best squat i don't know it's a lot it's close to a thousand yeah like 980 or something yeah something i like think that. i think he only did like 860 or something in training for mm. one yeah and like for him, he like he knows how much he's going to get out of it, but he weighs 150 kilos, 160 kilos. If, if you weigh 80 or if you're a 60 kilo female, you're not, it's just not going to be, apply the same way. Yeah, and a small distinction though, when he squats 860 in training, it's like, it'll be hard, but not like, oh, I could only do 880 hard. It'll be like he does 860, he could squat 920 or something. And then he gets, you know, like probably yeah 60 pounds say out of his peak yeah that's right he could probably do that 860 for you know three yeah so it's again it's not like like there's a difference between saying i'm going to jump 10 percent from the heaviest load i lift in training to my third at a meet um versus saying my actual capacity to lift weights is going to bump up 10 percent in the peak i guess he moves his 860 like an opener in training and then he opens it 880 exactly yeah so that's a that's a very different thing and again some something where people miscon like misconceive the idea of conservative training maxes and stuff it's not that that max is actually meant to represent how much you can lift 
and therefore you get 10% more on the day. That max is just there to keep your training difficulty in check. Um, but the thing I was going to say about overreaching is, yeah, I used to almost treat it not as like a goal, but certainly like I expected my athletes to be overreached. And it's like a checkpoint. Yeah, it's a checkpoint. I'm like, oh, sweet, they're overreached now. Time for a taper. Yeah, cool. Whereas now I'm much more like overreaching will be a consequence of people having to handle heavy loads in preparation and you know particularly the stronger they get there's only just so much time between overloading sessions that you have so you will accumulate some fatigue you'll probably overreach mildly but to the degree that i can prevent that i'm more than happy to because i don't see overreaching and super compensation as so beneficial that i would aim for it yeah i guess one of the one of the ways that i've changed the way that i ride a peak is the way that i use the light days um and I guess to keep that overreaching sort of at bay or to prevent it a little bit, I decrease the intensity and the difficulty of my easier sessions. So as mm. the harder sessions get harder, the easy sessions get easier. Mm. Whereas in the past, I used to think that, you know, the easy session would still have to have some overload to it. Yeah. So like a three by three might add five kilos. Whereas now I might go from a three by three to a three by two and it might be 20 kilos less. Yeah, so I, I'm not as drastic as you with it, but it's very much something I've moved towards where like I'll still usually have the linear load increases, but there'll be like an exponential decrease in difficulty. So say you do a three by five at 170 on your light day for a 250 squatter, my next week might be a three by four at 175 and then like a three by three or a three by two at 180. So the load still goes up, but the decrease in difficulty is massive. Or for some people, if I'm if I'm suspecting they're going to be extra beaten up, I'll flat load it. I'll go like 170 for three by five. Then the next easy week is 170 for three by four and then 170 for three by three, say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, along the similar lines of being like, you have to be fresh enough for your good work. I guess for the the better the lifter is, the easier I'll make the easier days and the easier they will get. Mm. So for someone like Nick Walters, his heavy squat day last week, he did 270 for a single and then 250 for three doubles. Yeah. Um, and then on his easy day, he did three triples at 160 high bar. <laughs> that's like, extremely yeah, easy. like literally nothing yeah um, versus like someone who maybe squats 50 kilos less they might have the same the same um light days as the other guy yeah which is relatively a lot harder i think um because i've been exposed luckily to a number of very good coaches um in powerlifting and i always pick people's brains in fact i pick the brains of people i think don't know shit all the time because I'm curious to see what I'll learn from them anyway. Like, not because I'm trolling them. I legit, like, legit, I've learned amazing things from people that I don't think know anything. But as it happens, I've also had some very good powerlifting coaches around. And in addition to the good ones, I've had Alex coaching me this past 10 weeks. Fuck you. <laughs> um, but no, something I think you do particularly well is consider fatigue management. Because, say, even for me in these last few weeks of the peak for this competition, the you know, you spaced my hardest deadlift and squat days by putting in an extra light squat day on what would previously have been a heavy one to have me better prepared for lifting my heavy single. And so I like, I try and take those lessons and think, how would I apply that to my own lifters? How could I have done my previous programs better? And that's certainly a way in which I would like to in future is rather than shape the loading to fit the overall structure of the program is be more malleable with the structure of the program in those final weeks to ensure that the lifter does well. You know what I mean? Yeah, and those are the important times to hit the weights really well. Mm. Um, because those that those give the coach the best indication of what you're going to be capable of on the day and they give the lifter the confidence that they need to execute on the platform. If you have your heaviest squat single, for instance, two days after your heaviest deadlift single and you're tired and you're beat up and you and you hit it and it's really hard, 
um, you're going to have doubts in your head about what you can do on the platform. And then when you get to the platform, you may not be able to execute because you're not mentally ready. Mm. Um, one final point about training difficulty, and then I think we do a break. Yeah, we've gone a lot for a long time about this. Yeah, well, it's the most important one. <laughs> um, one, yeah, one more point was AMRAPs. This one we can do quickly, oh <laughs> but <laughs> we spoke um, about this a lot on the um, uh, mistakes in training one. Yeah, I'm peaceful at AMRAPs. I just want to put that out publicly. Yeah, Will's predicted predicted maxes from his ten RMs is like three hundred squat, three fifty deadlift, and like. 140 bench yeah still pro- actually I'm shit at bench reps really good at squat and deadlift reps your bench is terrible your yeah it's because I have the longest stroke of all time coupled with full protraction of my shoulders yeah. as I press it's not good um, but yeah I'm very good at AMRAPs so naturally I love them and I also like doing things that are really hard so naturally I love them um, when I started training I would do or when I started training other people I should say I would give lots of people AMRAPs after blocks like of four to eight weeks in length so that I could update their training maxes. Because again, like this comes back to the theme I was speaking about before where you wanted to be able to have like a quantifiable progression all the time. So I'd give people AMRAPs and then update their training max and I would want to see increases in their training max every time after each AMRAP, um, which is really silly anyway because like rep max estimations mostly suck. But um, but yeah, I would, I would give them AMRAPs all the time and then I would update their training max because i would usually use percentages to infer how heavy people's training should be for the subsequent block whereas now i'm i can't remember the last time i gave someone an amrap oh actually chrissy's gonna do one in a couple of weeks because she's going on holidays and wants to for for funsies yeah but there's a difference between doing it for fun and doing it for training i very rarely use amraps now and i don't update my training max for a client um on the basis of testing ever now i i literally just keep the loads on the bar progressing and basically try and ensure that their training is like i said before just ticking along at the appropriate difficulty and much more intuitively increasing so if somebody's doing fives and at the end of their fives they're doing great i might just let them take their fives up a little bit more and start you know their next block of fours or threes or something a little heavier than than i otherwise would have and if the fives look a little bit harder than i wanted at the end of it then I'll backcycle a little bit when I give them their next block of fours or threes or whatever and go from there. But I I don't rely on AMRAPs and I don't so aggressively change my expectations for lifters' performance. Yeah, I feel the same way about those. I used to think of programming more as like calculations of um, percentage of 1RM and volume calculations, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now I tend to use sort of intuition a little bit more. Am I happy with how the reps individually look like are they sound reps are they moving okay um are they recovering session to session and if they are then continue doing the same thing but a little bit heavier with like as the volume drops etc etc so it's not necessarily like you have to do fives at 80 percent or fives at 85 percent which i used to sort of prescribe to that idea subscribe to that idea whereas now it's like you just have to keep ticking ticking things along keeping the reps good making sure you're um, staying away from niggles and making sure you're recovering from session to session. Yeah, and I think I still do use percentages. Like, I don't, don't get me wrong, but I use that to like, to sort of back check that my loading might be appropriate. So if I give somebody fives and I check back how hard, how hard are they um, to start and they're at like 70, 75% or 80% or something, 
I'll I'll be like, okay, that's probably not ridiculous. But you know, if it if it comes out at ninety percent, I'll be like, yeah, I'm definitely wrong. And I particularly do that with women's bench press actually, because that's the one where two and a half kilo differences can actually like tend to actually make a big difference in percentage terms. So I like I use it as a sanity check, but not as like a means to an end for loading. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, and uh, on that point on women's bench press, mm. if you are a female listening to this show and you compete in powerlifting and you don't have micro plates, get micro plates for your oh, bench they're press. They're so handy. They are like they just will change your life. Um, one other thing, sort of on the AMRAP thing, is I wrote this down. I just thought it was worth reading, almost as is. Um, I use improvement of my clients as evidence that the dosage of training that I've given them is about correct and then make minor adjustments to the dosage from there. But I no longer view the difficulty of training as an end point. I actually view the outcome of improved performance of my strength athletes as an end point. So if training gets, and Alex said this way early in our podcast, this would be in the first 10 episodes. If, if training manages to actually get heavier and better at the same time, that's awesome and easier. That's awesome. It's not often the way it is, but, um, but yeah, that's great. So I don't use difficulty as an endpoint for strength athletes. I use improved performance as an endpoint. For hypertrophy training specifically, and I do have a couple of bodybuilders, then I do actually ballpark difficulty a little bit more closely. And that's, again, got like nerdy reasons to do with volume and stuff that I'll talk to Luke about. But basically, reps do need to be sufficiently difficult for bodybuilding to be stimulative or to be maximally stimulative. And in order to keep the volumes of work moderate, you want most of the work you do to be also moderately difficult. So in that instance, I do actually want things to be hard enough. But also in that instance, I don't push load progression as much because provided difficulty is correct, then you don't necessarily need to advance load until the difficulty starts to fall. So opposite ends of the spectrum. But again, being hard is not the end point. Getting the outcome is the end point. Anything to add? No, I'm with you there. All right. Why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come right back for a bit more stuff. Cool. Weekly Weights. Oh, that's... That sucked. What? That was my coke crack. I'd already half done it. Oh, that was so underwhelming. I was well. expecting like... You know? It is good though. It is good. Diet this Coke week. sponsored by Weekly Weights sponsored by Diet Coke. I was going to say Diet Coke up. sponsored by Weekly Weights. We're not rolling in it yet. When we launch the t-shirts, yeah, then all, we'll be rolling in all it. All kinds of bank. I'll buy a Ferrari. <laughs> I think I might just buy the Coca-Cola company. Once I own the Coca-Cola company, I can like rest on my laurels because I don't think they're ever going broke. No. No. Not with all the new flavors of Coke that keep coming out. They own yeah. like so many other things. Yeah. Good old Coca-Cola like amateur. Powerade. Yeah, exactly. Powerade is awesome. Who owns Mother? Or Monster, sorry. Coke. Coke owns Monster. Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, shout out to our, yeah, Insect Coke Overlords. Send us a Monster. Yeah, that'd actually be awesome. If Monster want to sponsor Weekly Weights, then I'll stop ragging on energy drinks being unhealthy. <laughs> and coffee being better. All right. Um, coffee sucks. Okay. So, so all the listeners who haven't abruptly quit listening to Weekly Weights after that, horribly offensive remark from alex um we're here talking again about uh things have changed our mind about and on my piece of paper i've just got technique written down um alex what specifically about technique had you changed your mind on i think just 
are putting a greater emphasis now on doing things, you know, as well as the person can do at all times, given the, the load on the bar. Um, and I think the the initial emphasis on technique, I guess, is when I start out with someone, I'll, a lot of their work will be really, really light and they'll often have um, a variation in there which is in there to get them to move a certain way, um, whether that be if a squats could be tempos or pauses or whatever. Um, yeah, just a, a greater emphasis on creating the right technique in the first place and then building on that later later on. So I guess laying the foundation for how we want to move and then once we are happy with how they move, then we can start to load the bar a little bit. Whereas in the past, it was kind of like, all right, welcome aboard, let's do tens. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. And I think um, like from my perspective, because I've certainly also come to view technique as of like prime importance in training now as well. From my perspective initially, and this comes back to me just thinking things should be hard and you can grind and get better initially i was like well you don't actually get points for doing the lifts better Mm -hmm. aesthetically you get points for lifting the weight Mm -hmm. so if people do a heavier weight even if the technique breaks down a little bit that's okay as long as they're trying to do good technique most of the time and but that that's okay in the competition context 100 percent. because you know i say this all the time there's no pictures on the scorecard if you get two whites you get a fucking green tick on the next lifter and it goes up as a made lift on the website later. Yeah, sure. But there's a difference between saying you're allowed to have little technical lapses on the platform so long as you get your lift as opposed to... You're allowed to have those technical lapses all the time. Yeah, and like for me, it was sort of like if you try to lift with good technique and you just lift hard, then you're going to get stronger. And if you get stronger and your technique doesn't really get better, you're still stronger, so who gives a fuck? Mm. Um, whereas now I've realized, one, they work synergistically. Two, there's lots of benefits to technique being better as far as like actually being able to handle more training and not getting hurt and increasing your, um, your ceiling for training and stuff. All these things that I overlooked then. And I also realized training doesn't have to be so hard that you can't maintain technique to still be stimulative and somewhere on my website there's an article where i talk about how there's probably like a threshold above which your technique is going to be bad or at least not optimal a lot and there's also the threshold of difficulty that your training has to be in order to be stimulative and most of the time now i try and have most of my work in between those two so it's hard enough to be useful but not so hard that you don't do it well most of the time yeah agreed agreed there i think one way of looking at this is i guess it's similar to what we were just talking about with um training being you know we wanted training to be hard all the time and now you know we don't necessarily agree with that is how i use variations and um i guess my basic template is has people squat twice a week so and that hasn't changed from um from a few years ago but it's just how those squats were laid out so you know monday might be hard squats and then thursday might be um a variation but still hard in the past, that would be the case. Whereas now, it might be Monday is hardish squats, and then on the Thursday they do like a technique variation. And I guess in the past, I've always considered um, variations to be less useful than the main lift. Like the way I would think about it is, you know, if you're going to do a high bar squat, why wouldn't you just do a low bar squat? And I guess obviously my thoughts on that have changed, but now it's like that variation should be loaded lighter to allow you to recover for Monday versus that variation being as hard as that variation could possibly be. Mm. Does that make sense? 
yeah, I'm going to plug another of my articles, which is Variations, What Are You Doing and Why, where I talk about pretty much that in depth as well, is Variations, yeah, Variations can serve a fatigue management purpose as well. You can do, I mean, even if you do things of a similar relative difficulty, if your variation forces you to use lighter weights, it's less disruptive. That's number one. But yeah, number two, you can actually load them relatively easier and more specifically address a weakness or technical issue with the variation and have people prepared to execute better on their hard session again. But I want to, um, based on what you were saying there about technique work, I want to just bring up a talking point. Um, something Mike Teixeira wrote a post about recently, and I'm going to have to paraphrase him because I couldn't find it. Um, I used to believe technique work should always be really easy and perfect, and I still like err towards that, but I don't, I don't truly believe it anymore. Um, and what Mike wrote was basically that if you're doing something for technique work, it needs to sufficiently challenge the aspect of technique that you are trying to train um, to actually make you do it well and be better at it. So it's if you're doing, say, easy squats that are easy for technique, then that's almost active recovery or that's just a low stimulus day. Whereas if you are trying to train somebody, say, to not fall forward in the squat and so you've chosen to use a safety bar squat or whatever it happens to be a pin squat or a paused squat it needs to be hard enough that they actually have to fight to not fall forward and actually be challenging to be of use for technique improvement what do you think about that well i guess that's why we use stuff like a tempo squat or a pause squat it limits the load on the bar but it actually makes the movement itself more challenging so Mm. the movement itself is challenging enough to provide an adaptation and to so I guess make it hard enough to that you actually have to do everything properly to make it good, but it's there's not enough load in the bar that it creates enough fatigue to hurt you later down the track or the next day or whatever the case is. Mm. Um, I guess I used to use lighter days as just the main lift, but just loaded lighter, which I still do at some points. But now I guess I tend to go towards something that's, you know, um, I guess more difficult, like like a tempo or a pause squat than the main lift versus just the main lift itself yeah and like i said before i where i choose a variation i do choose that variation because i think it specifically targets a skill that is worth working on um here and there i might change the variation even if i'm targeting the same skill just to keep things fresh for somebody um but for the most part, I, I choose the tech, like the variation that I think is most appropriate for that person, for their issue, and yeah, load it such that it's sufficiently challenging for them to get better without actually yeah, burying them for the hard work. And I think um, this is a concept. There's two kind of big concepts here. One is related to how important technique is. And so, yeah, where before I thought powerlifting was basically a strength sport, so you get people stronger. I'm saying that with air quotes. Get people stronger and therefore they can lift more. Now I think powerlifting is a skill sport about strength where you need to get people stronger, but the way in which we measure strength is through the expression of a specific skill. So you need to be able to do that skill most efficiently because if you could lift more weight without producing any more newtons of force, then you actually are winning at powerlifting. So it's a skill sport and a strength sport together, not just a strength sport. And number two is that I think within the powerlifts, although they are a... Like, you know, the squat, the competition squat that you do has a distinct technique. There are discrete sort of like skills or movement competencies that I think are transferable between between similar movements. And so when you do when you do variations, um, 
So say like a front squat teaches you not to tip forward during your squat because if you do, you dump the bar forward and you miss. That movement skill is to a degree transferable from from that variation to the main squat. If you're mindful about your training and you sort of are a bit, I don't know, um, introspective about the way in which you carry it out, then you can, yeah, you can take all of those skills that you learn from being sort of a well-rounded athlete and then put them into the competition squat and then with sufficient practice and proper loading and all of that you become a better competition squatter by amalgamating all those skills does that make sense absolutely yeah um so yeah that's cool um i had something else oh specificity because i was talking about specificity just then Mm. um so you kind of said what did you say you were like yeah if you were doing a squat that wasn't a squat why don't you just do a squat yeah i said that back in you know only three four years ago i used to consider doing the main lift as often as per week as you can and if you weren't if you were doing a variation you may as well be doing the main lift yeah yeah so on like there's a couple of things just in response to that one is the power lifts aren't that complicated i mean bench press is technically semi-challenging and not very natural for people and so you need a bit of practice at it for most people Agreed. Um, squatting is not that complicated. Deadlifting is not that complicated. I mean, like, you know, there's plenty that you can do to improve at it, but there's also a degree of transfer from similar activities to it. I think on and that, sorry, this is an extra thing that I hadn't written down. I used to think the bench press was the most simple. Really? And the squat and deadlift weren't the most simple. Really? Yeah. That's so weird. I've I've never once thought that, but I've also probably read enough powerlifting internet forums where people have said, oh, bench is the most technically challenging. Yeah, it's you know, been drilled into your mind yeah um tuck yeah. the elbows drive it back yeah oh my back god to the face de- load the lats oh mate gotta load them up that's <laughs> my lats are really big my bench tuck isn't what do you think load the lats yeah down um to the belly <laughs> um but like but yeah the pallets aren't that complicated and so while i do think you like obviously you need to work on technique all the time while you're doing them that like you can also afford to do some training that is not specifically powerlifting and bring it all together later it's not like a skill that needs absolutely constant refinement like your golf swing which is a really like which needs to be super precise all the time so i think where it is appropriate within your training plan relatively unspecific training can still be useful to build your abilities and have some transfer but the place where my thoughts on specificity have really changed is in peaking um and this is again at least partly attributable to something Mike Teixeira wrote once, which I thought was really good, where he said the way in which we think about specificity is basically as a heuristic, I think that's, I think he used the word heuristic, for transfer, um, which is to say like it's just a simple way of thinking about transfer or transference, where you know if you do a competition squat and you see improvement in the competition squat, then you know your competition squat has improved, right? That's, you know, so that's the most specific thing you can do. That's just a truism. But then there are other things that obviously have a relationship to your competition squat where if you improve them, you will get you will get transfer to it. And when you read all the all the old articles by people who are training very West Side style, they would talk about their builder lifts. Again, that's with air quotes. You know, the ones where when they saw improvement in that, they know they would see improvement in their other ones. And so they would often choose their max effort movements or their supplementary movements to be those builder lifts because they wanted to make sure they got better because they got their comp lift better. And I used to think that was a little bit absurd and a roundabout way of thinking. Whereas now, what I think is like, 
if there is something that is a really elegant training solution for a problem that you have, so say it happens to be that you tip forward in the squat, and I think front squats are a shit example for this one for the moment, but like say it's front squats, you know, and training front squats really helps you with that, then there is probably some value in preserving that to teach that movement skill and specifically address that movement skill because it has high immediate transference to your squat up until close to the peak or up right up through your peak in some instances and the reason that peaks need to get more specific is because as you trim away the things that have less immediate transfer as opposed to just building general you know muscle and strength capacity and stuff as you trim away the things that have less immediate transfer you are always left with a more specific picture because the competition lifts are the most immediately transferable but you can still include things that aren't the competition lifts if they have immediate benefit does that make sense absolutely the way i said it um yeah and so and so before i would have arbitrarily dropped something like a front squat or a paused squat um to include a competition squat in its place loaded lighter because it had to be specific or else i thought i was wasting my time whereas now i make much more of a balanced judgment on that and think should i just give them a really light practice squat session that's easy or do I think keeping that in there dosed appropriately is better? Yeah. Yeah, well, we spoke about that in the um, peaking plan podcast where I kept high bars in the whole time for mm. the relatively new lifter and I went to low bars for the more advanced lifter. So yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And something that I definitely would have done in the past is just thrown in that secondary movement, uh, the secondary day of the same movement. Whereas now, I guess, I kind of weigh up the pros and cons a little bit more before just like going to the default yeah that's true um and in that same episode i spoke about how the bench press like in my experience often benefits from a bit of sort of like pothole training or slightly less specific training laid into the peak and also through just maintaining more training difficulty um and I, like again i'm just spitballing but maybe because it is slightly more complicated having those little parts addressed can be useful so long as you have the bulk of your work being like proper bench press you can sort of learn those little bits of the skill and put them all together. Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe. But again, that's something I probably have to think more deeply about before I form an opinion. Yeah. Yeah, one example that I've used a lot is for a few of my my lifters who've had troubles with their elbows from low barring. I've kept high bars in the whole time mm. and that's had no impact on their squat performance on the day. Yeah, I mean, high bar and low bar squats. Here's another example yeah, of why the powerlifts aren't complicated. It's not like you're, you know, you're doing a Muay Thai session instead of, instead of squatting. You're still no. squatting. Yeah, although some people do more or less do a Muay Thai session just to mobilize themselves to squat. That is... Shout out Nick Walters. <laughs> Does he have to do heaps of mobility? Not heaps of mobility, but like heaps of... Yeah, I guess he does quite an extensive routine. He, he does kind of... Actually, shout out to my client, Tim Fleming, who actually shadow boxes between sets. I was going to lie and say that Nick Walters shadow boxes and does judo kicks between sets. He doesn't. Um, but... But my client, Tim Fleming, does love to shadow box a little bit. And he just catches himself doing it now because I've laughed at him so many times for doing it. If you leave him to his own devices, you'll find him in the corner shadow boxing. Just sub- subconsciously does it. Yeah. Um, it's good, though. At least I know, like, I think he's a Rocky fan. And he's got Eye of the Tiger just playing in his head on repeat all the time when he's with me. Yeah, I'm very happy with that, though. Because, like, as a trainer, I sort of say, like, I'm here for information, not inspiration. You know, so if somebody wants to come with their own like montage music in the back of their head, I'm fine with that. Very good. Uh, yeah, Alex cool. hated that again. Anyway, oh. so we just spoke about um, 
the importance of technique and how our views have, sh- uh, have shifted on that. Now we're going to talk about each of the main lifts and how our concept of what good technique is in the squat, the bench, and the lift. Did you want to go first with the squat, Will? Yeah, um, to be honest, there's been... Most of the things I haven't changed my mind about per se, I've just learned more. Um, so that's that's a different thing. Like, And I think the more I train, the more I train people, the more I'll learn about how to do all the lifts. So that's that's not really noteworthy. But one thing that, has cha- that I have changed my mind about a lot were squat shoes. Um, initially you know when i started reading stuff about lifting weights it was all like you know sit back hip drive weight on your heels flat shoes um shout don't let to, your shins go forward shout out to mark ribato yeah mark definitely, have on, definitely have to get him on the podcast i actually reckon he'd be pretty good fun on the podcast he's got like he's got that really good, good humor. he's got that texan drawl yeah i don't i mean i don't know if he's got a good sense of humor he's He's somewhere between sardonic and just an absolute dickhead when he comments to people who ask him questions on his forum. Sounds like Robert Wilkes. Yeah, I guess so. He'd probably be good fun, but he's got a great accent and he's just so... Hip drive. Yeah, hip drive. Um, <laughs> I was not close to it. That was like a South Park voice. Mine was better. Yeah, yours was better. But um, but I do think he's like... He's literally the, I wear my shorts really high and tuck my polo shirt into it, strength coach and guy. And you can that, see the, the white socks from the bottom of their track Oh, 100%. Bottom. They're the old school tennis socks that just sit like most of the way up your shin. That's They're, Wilkesy as well. Yeah, 100%. So I think he'd be valuable in that respect. But yeah, it wasn't just Mark Ripto who said that. Um, you know, there was like, again, lots of the elite FTS stuff, yeah, lots of the stuff that came from geared lifters. So I, I was 100% in the, like, you better sit back and use your hips. And it makes sense because your hips are bigger than your quads and all that stuff. Camp. But it doesn't really make sense. Do you think that has affected how you squat now? And do you think that's part of the reason why you do have that little shift now? No, I... Off topic. But the reason that I have that shift... Surgeries. Yeah, because when I, like, between then and now, I did Olympic weightlifting. And I could squat, like, 180 high bar, literally my butt touching my ankles and knees sitting over my toes. Like comfortably when i was 19 um beltless as well how funny is that and now i suck but um but yeah i could do that and then after my knee surgeries i've become really um it's like reflexively avoidant of deep knee flexion and even now if i do like a bodyweight squat and put my butt as close to my ankle as i can it's almost like i have inhibition like i really struggle to extend my knees and so i think a lot of it's that but what's funny is when i when I squat correctly like that for a little bit, it's almost rehabilitative. Like after a few weeks of, if I do high bars and like actually force my knees to travel, force myself to stay in my quads, I get much better control of the way my knee tracks. It feels way better. Okay, now that we know lots about Will, let's go back to the topic. Yeah, so anyway, I used to... Thank you, Alex. You love talking about yourself, don't you? Um, you know what? People love listening to us because we've got about 29,000 views so far and a good 60% of the content is me talking about me. At least 60 and probably a good 60% of those 29,000 views are me listening to me talking about me. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, I used to very much be in the like sit back, sit back camp. And then after a while, I've, I began to be in the, the more upright you are, the better camp. Um, both of which have like superficial merit that I don't think really plays out. And now I'm, I'm much more of, of the opinion that basically your weight distribution needs to be balanced. And depending on how you're built, that is more or less going to lend itself to a certain squat bottom position. And then as you stand up, you want your knees and hips to come together synchronously. 
And so, and so all those things have changed and all the ways in which I've thought about squatting has changed because of them. But the, the biggest thing that's actually changed in my mind um, to do with that is squat shoes. Because when I, thought, um, when I thought people had to sit back, I also thought squat shoes were therefore dumb. And then when I thought people have to be as upright as they can be, I thought everyone should wear squat shoes. Because if you wear a squat shoe, it lets your knee travel further forward because it gives you a bit more ankle range of motion. And if it facilitates a more upright bottom position, it's therefore to every single person's advantage to wear squat shoes. And so there's no reason you shouldn't. And something Alex said, which at the time I thought was not on the money, was that basically when people start standing up out of the bottom of the squat, there's going to be a sort of distribution of their knees and hips and body around the bar and stuff that is best. And if you put somebody in a squat shoe and it doesn't suit them, then they'll probably shoot back into that position. And if you if you need to put somebody in a squat shoe, they're not going to be able to assume that position. And so you should basically just assess whether they need it on that basis. And so a lot of your lifters, Alex, now lift in flats because you've realized they don't really need the squat shoe and they have less shift at the bottom of their squat. And more and more, I'm starting to think that way as well because I now think basically where are they most balanced and where can they use both the knees and hips together well. Mm. See, I, I actually went the opposite direction to you. I, when I first started doing powerlifting, I considered, um, I watched a lot of weightlifting videos and I would see like the lighter weight Chinese guys squatting fucking heaps, mm. high bar, upright. Obviously, part of that is because of the way they're built, short legs and stuff yeah. and the bar higher on the back. I, th- I thought that that was the ideal squat, that we want to be as upright as we can. And then I sort of, started getting into powerlifting a little bit more more specifically and most of the videos were as you said elite fts west side geared lifting and everyone was sort of sitting back and no one was wearing heels everyone was in flats so i kind of got a little bit confused by that and i wasn't really too sure and then i did the powerlifting course with wilksy and he said that everyone just about everyone should be in flat shoes he said i think he says about 80 20 yeah he something says, like he that. says about 20 percent of people need to be in heels and the rest are in flats and i found that to be actually probably a correct resemblance of my lifters i would say about 80 percent of them are in flat shoes um not because i follow everything that robert does but a lot of people who wear like will said who wear heels um who don't need them will shift back onto their hips more than than they would if they weren't in the heels so for those people a flat shoe is probably a better idea and um i guess for me i always have needed the heel shoe so i've i guess like when i was first starting out i figured like i need heels therefore everyone needs heels mm. and i guess that that has definitely changed um because of the like whole upright thing i guess we'll go into like i'll, I'll go into like how i used to cue this cue yeah, the squat on. versus how i cue it now um because that my ideal was that we want everyone upright um chest up was probably the biggest cue that i would use and i would use it at the wrong time i don't think it's a bad cue but i think it has to be used um at the right point of the squat and i would use it at the beginning of the squat like before the descent the ribs would flare up they would get into anterior pelvic tilt and they would end up like with a very inconsistent bottom position and you know no stability in the bottom Mm. um whereas now like obviously i would cue ribs ribs to be down so it's actually the opposite and then chest up out of the bottom position so that that's definitely changed um and the way I used to think about squats as well was the knees coming out. Um, and now, like, I don't even think about the knees now. I don't even mention the knees when 
I'm queuing other than keep their knees forward out of the bottom. I don't think about like sideways direction at all because I've sort of learned that, that those things come from the hip and from the foot. And if you have the stable foot and the strong enough hips, your knee should stay in place anyway and you don't really need to cue that. Yeah, so I initially thought knees out was really important because um, because people were saying, you know, if you like... So imagine you're looking at somebody sideways right now. So since they're fixing the squat and bench and deadlift, we haven't really had the chance to do imaginary anything. So guys, imaginary squat, you're viewing somebody from side on, right? Um, so the plates on the barbell are facing you. If they squat right down, if you, so the length of their femur, the upper leg segment, right? In the plane that you're looking at them now, which you're looking at them moving in the sagittal plane, if you were to push the knee out as far as you can, the length of that segment shortens, which means for you to stay balanced over the midfoot, the torso can be more upright, right? And so if you read like supple leopard and stuff, or you look at anybody weightlifting, people will be like, well, if you get your knees out, um, knees out, you can be more upright and that's advantageous for like catching a clean or something. Um, and likewise, for people with very long femurs, there's some advice that, you know, you should probably take a wider squat stance and wear a heeled shoe because it'll facilitate a more upright squat position and avoid the squat morning. And that all kind of makes sense. But then as as I started coaching people, I realized that, you know, if you force them to drive their knees out, often they lose that good even foot pressure. And the knees kind of track funny. I found in my own experience sometimes that if I force the knuckle of my big toe down and then actually get my knees in, and almost like internally rotate a little bit at the hip before I start my squat descent. I have more room in my hips and I stay more balanced and I use my legs better. And arbitrarily forcing the knees out can often take the legs out of the equation and just have you sort of shaky on your feet and relying on your hips far, far too much when you squat. Yeah. But the, like the reasoning sounded sound. And so it took me a lot of doing squats, coaching squats and thinking about squats to think about why that mightn't always be the best, the best example. Or sorry, not the best example, the best queuing i guess yeah i guess i used to i used to see a lot of my newer lifters that would be a problem that they would have is their knees would come in and out um so they would, they'd kind of hit the bottom and then as they'd come out of the hole the knees would come in and they'd wiggle back out as they get to yeah. the top and that's like super common we see it all the time and as i've learned more and more and more i've realized that you know if you are stable in the foot your knee is probably going to track in the right direction and you probably don't even need to mention the knees at all yeah so, want to stop your knee snapping in on the way out of the hole of your squat is stop pushing it out so far before yeah. you go down literally have your knee set have your foot set just let your knee bend yeah. and then when you're coming up you can push it out a little bit if you want so long as your toe stays down you'll be fine so you're saying that all we have to do in the squat wheel is bend the knee and straighten it <laughs> yeah literally it's exactly <laughs> if i could think of bench in this in this similar simple of a way i should say what do you mean Oh, I don't know. Just bench. stable, stable shoulders, and then yeah, bend I think you've lost strength. me at point one. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's squats. Is there anything else major that's changed for you with squats? Um, with squats, no. I guess I guess just the symptom. I guess what I wanted to see is always what I would do versus so like you know cueing knees out when the knees come in. If you cue knees out, they can't really do anything about their knees unless they're stable through the foot and strong through the, the glute. Mm. Um, so I guess instead of cueing it was realizing what caused the issue in the first place and the cue's not going to fix an issue like that and I guess I didn't really know that at the time yeah so do you remember so just learning more pop quiz Alex Jamie his his nice term for the relationship between different joints and muscles crossing them and stuff so the reason you see changes up and down the kinetic chain 
with movements. Do you remember what his term was? No. Come on. It's on your lips. I don't remember. He wasn't even listening. It's regional interdependency. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Okay. <laughs> well, shout out, Jamie. Alex wasn't listening. By the um, time this podcast comes out, I will have listened to the other one, so I will remember. Okay, good. <laughs> um, Jamie also running a seminar in Sydney in March, so if you want to listen to him, you can. Um, listen to him like Alex didn't. So, <laughs> so next one, the bench press. What's changed in how you think about bench technique? Well, we've spoken about this quite a few times actually on the podcast and we spoke about this on the high performance podcast too if you want to plug that yeah. what episode was that I don't know. 90 something i think was it their episode 90 um so one of the things that they asked us was why do people tuck the elbows in the bench press and why do people cue the lats in the bench press and a lot of this has come from um single ply and multiply powerlifting which is where which is the origins of most of the training information that we had when we first started when we first started coaching, you know, probably five years ago, right? Yeah. So those ideas of tucking the elbows and loading the lats in the descent is really about getting the most out of the shirt and we all lift raw, so we don't really need to think about that. Um, so I guess for the most part it was ignorance on my on my end not understanding like why we would say tuck the elbows or why we would say um use the lats in the descent but now that i have a better understanding of the sport and a better understanding of how the body moves i guess i've changed completely and i would i would not tell someone to um tuck their elbows unless they flared them too far Mm. and in most cases i'm telling people to take your elbows wide or elbows out or you know bend the bar or something like that to get them thinking about keeping their elbows underneath the bar versus in front of the bar when you say bend the bar you're meaning bending it in a u across your chest as opposed to a u towards your feet right yeah correct yeah um yeah i'd like i was certainly the same i like my notes for bench was basically what the elbows do i was certainly the same and again like i read all these really good rationales about why you should tuck your elbows um you know and ranging from use your triceps better to distribute weight between your pecs and shoulders better um, there was, you know, people saying you'd avoid some subacromial impingement and all that stuff. Your acromion being this sort of like hook-like process of your scapula that your humerus is moving under. Um, like all, yeah, all those rationales made me think there's probably something to it. But then, yeah, more and more with coaching, I basically realized if you set a stable shoulder position, start the bar in the right place, you should pretty much be able to get a close to vertical descent. And you might see the bar flare towards the face a bit during the press, but it, that flare shouldn't be the result of you having tucked enormously to begin with. It's, you know, um, it should be much more subtle. And um, yeah, what what we often see is you mentioned a good point there is um, the bar starting in the right place. So the bar the bar has to start directly over the touch point so that it can travel in a straight line. And what we see with those, um, what we see in equipped lifting is the bar starts very far like close to the face and then mm. it ends up touching much lower than where we would touch in a raw bench so the distance that it travels um forward versus up and down is like really really far the bar is traveling way 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 further in total total distance than it would if it traveled straight yeah and i think th- and sort of related to this is alterations in grip width where um like i've coached a couple of people who are pretty big you remember my client michael at bondi he was like 110 120 kilos maybe nah okay um and he benched with a pretty narrow grip because he didn't like going wide and so by necessity he had to tuck to keep his elbows under the bar 
But now when I make adjustments to grip width in the bench, it's often on the basis of like, does the elbow in the bottom position look like it's in a comfortable spot um, from where they actually want to start the descent? And for some people, if the grip's just a little bit too wide, then they just can't actually hit a comfortable bottom position with their elbow stacked under the bar. And so usually moving the grip in a little bit or out a little bit will help with that just based on the position they're assuming there. And likewise, the degree of tuck you need might be related to that as well, where for some people, if they just can't with a wide grip um, go straight up and down and keep their elbows stacked, I sometimes will bring the grip in and then allow a little bit more tuck because that's just what actually feels more natural for them. But it's still on the basis of them starting where they should and going down pretty straight from there. And, you know, the elbow will tuck to stay under the bar if they're starting with a narrow grip just by necessity. Does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. Um, I think as a general rule, the longer the arms you have, the uh, the further forward the bar will travel in yeah. the descent. Yeah, because it pretty much has to because there's only so much arm you can do. Like otherwise your elbow, again, guys, imaginary benches, imagine that you have a crazy, crazy long arm. If it's really long and you try and go wide and down, then your elbow is going to have to get like way past the plane of your body before the bar touches, right? Unless you've got a wicked arch. Yeah, unless you've got a wicked arch. Whereas, um, yeah, whereas if you have like a relatively short um, humerus, short upper arm, then your elbow is not going to have to go as far past it to get down, right? Um, so from, yeah. from there, what's some of the, what about cueing on the way up? So the way I used to cue on the way up was always press to your face or punch it back or to the rack, something about the mm. bar traveling backwards versus now um, the work is all done on the way down. Like if you get the right touch point, you get the descent speed right, you touch and you're able to hold tension all you have to do on the way up is lock your elbow. And I've found that my cueing in bench now is more about getting them set up right and making sure they're in the right position, making sure the bar starts in the right spot and making sure that they, again, create that tension in the setup and in the descent. And then on the way up, it just happens. Yeah, I just I usually say straight up, which is a kind of, that's almost a nothing cue. Um, but I, don't, I used to say back to face heaps. Yeah. Um, I still do that for people and the times I do that though are normally when someone's made an error actually in the descent because again good imaginary bench if you're bringing yourself down and your chest collapses your shoulder will elevate and your elbow will roll up towards your face relative to the bar and almost invariably those same people will do a sort of honky press off the chest where they go towards their legs a bit or they go like just a little bit too straight and then you have to say back to your face and they'll have to sort of scoop their elbow under it and with a really heavy weight they'll usually just miss. So when they do that, I'll say back to your face. But if somebody hits their chest well, I just say chest up, straight up. And then if they keep their chest high and they think of pushing straight up, they'll actually get that bar movement back to the face or at least into relative shoulder flexion, meaning that the upper arm is coming up towards your head um, relative to the shoulder. They'll get that movement just by pushing straight up in inverted commas. So that's pretty much all I say. Yeah. You know, I mean, give or take something that somebody needs for their specific situation i just say straight up yeah i would use press back for someone who tends to get their yeah, elbow in the wrong spot and their elbow is kind of pointing them forward yeah versus where we want to travel relatively straight a little bit back and actually on that note though those people whose elbow tends to fall into the wrong place those are actually the people for whom i would i would cue them like chest up and tuck your elbow a little bit and it's really counterintuitive i've had a few people who've almost overcorrected in drawing their elbows wide where they do suddenly dump the bar onto their chest late and for those people i do have to say hey bring your elbow under the yep. bar like still tuck it a little more 
and sometimes even getting them onto their chest just with the bar and just poking their elbow until they feel the position actually helps yeah one actually one thing that i've used lately as a cue for the bench press which i've only kind of done in the last three or four weeks is keep your elbow under the bar yeah so i'd say under the bar under the bar or elbows under or something like that yeah and i don't think that's a very helpful cueing strategy for when people are doing really heavy weights because with really heavy weights when you're thinking about like things that are happening internally in your body i don't think it facilitates best performance but when you're learning like totally and when people are warming up just to give them that sense of what the movement should feel like then i think that can be useful as well but then once they're doing the heavy weights it's things like yeah you know push it away straight up Elbows. things like that try yeah. try hard <laughs> yeah um people often need reminding yeah that's that's the main thing that's changed in my mind about bench to be honest the rest has all been just learning more um what about deadlifts um so my thoughts on starting position haven't changed at all um i've kind of always thought that there needs to be a straight line from the hand to the shoulder mm. from the side and from the front view <clears throat> so we have that sort of the lo- the arm in the longest possible position and the arm like the bar close to the body and the, the the bar coming up the shin and up the leg so that hasn't really changed at all but i guess the thing that has changed for me is um the deadlift for me used to be like get in the right position and go and that's kind of how i would would teach it and cue it and with all with um i guess quality going out the window mm. and it's sort of like get in the right position and yank it and you know don't worry about holding tension versus now i t- teach patience off the floor getting tension in the bar tension in your legs and i guess using the lower body more than the back i guess probably the 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 simplest way to say it yeah look i i agree in sentiment like with yeah all the sentiments of what you said i actually want to talk about arm position that's something i've changed my mind about um eventually but yeah like certainly i've slowly well not slowly after not that long came to think more about um more about sort of like positioning holding position and using your muscles effectively but something that really comes under that is actually start position where i i probably had my initial model in my head of the deadlift formed on the basis of people who are really well built to deadlift and so i was always like hey your shins should be basically vertical when you set up um whereas now i i do think of that plumb line of um of armpit kneecap bar midfoot but for some people just because of the way they're built that means the knee will need to be you know a little bit more ahead of the ankle like you know they'll need a bit more knee bend and something that i've observed with a lot of my clients um is people who try and assume too vertical of a shin position and actually bump the bar right up on top of their ankle joint often have a terrible deadlift off the floor and it's not necessarily because they can't use their legs per se it's because the bar is so cramped to them that they can't use their legs without rounding their back over it and so what happens is they round their back because the bar is too close to them to put their shoulder back over the bar and then they use their legs but then they have to re-extend the bar that's like tom clark hey yeah tom's a bit like that but he's also just not very good at bracing shout out tom but tim fleming who i was coaching this morning i should show you this video i'm probably going to post on my instagram story of literally deadlift session one and then deadlift session two days later where i just said move the bar an inch further away from you before you start pulling and that inch allowed him to actually let his knee move forward to the bar just a tiny bit nothing else changed suddenly his back was flat he could use his lower body he didn't have to re-extend the back like everything just moved better so instead of instead of making people have vertical shins i make them assume that plumb line position 
and if they assume that plumb line position the kneecap will still be over the bar and stuff but i'm a lot less i'm a lot less picky about having the shin a little bit inclined and even if you look at my own deadlifting videos and i'm relatively well built to deadlift i start with a slightly inclined shin even on my ones that aren't too squatty like say look at my 290 which was a relatively good pull technically my shin was still ahead of vertical for the first you know two three inches of the pull and it's by the time i get to the knee i want to see people's shins vertical all the time yeah um and so that was probably just a tempering my thought but um arm width or do you want to say something about that no no you go um arm width so this is something i've changed my mind about i used to think it had to be the arms go straight down and then i was like oh if i get somebody really big and they can't get around their own thighs then like their arms can go out and they're just gonna be bad like bad at deadlifting because they're built badly um and i think that's probably that probably holds true for conventional for sumo deadlifters i've actually had a little bit of success with a couple of my clients in moving their grip slightly further out than i would have thought they should and if you haven't watched jp shout out jp if you haven't watched jp's youtube video about um about the sumo deadlift then you should because he gives a really good demonstration of it but as you get to the lockout of the sumo your thighs can really get in the way or your hands can really get in the way of your thighs and by moving your grip just a little bit out sometimes you can improve that enormously and so for some people the trade-off of having them have to squat just a little bit lower and you know reach a little bit further with their arms um for them having a much better movement across their thighs really beneficial and it's not like it's not in the order of inches and inches it's normally like hey if you move your finger out oh sorry if you move your grip out one or two fingers on both sides suddenly your your deadlift is going to look a little, a little bit better and in my experience that's been really beneficial and that's something yeah i changed my mind about by coaching more sumo lifters i've had i've actually heard jp say the wider the better to some of his lifters like just really? when i was down at the fort yeah okay that's interesting i like i have never taken it to that extreme but i can see why because i think i think that was like an off the cuff like comment to one lifter i don't think that was like a blanket yeah. statement to be honest it's very hard to put myself in the mind of a cheater like jp coward coward specifically talking about sumo cheating um not not any other respect although alex is pretty filthy at jp for <laughs> for competing in the strength fortress which will be the day after this podcast is released yeah we're gonna take your money jp yeah i was gonna say fearless predictions for the strength fortress so have we got anything more specifically to cover on oh uh, yeah yeah some stuff yeah okay well still fearless predictions quick break and then we'll come back for the last one all right fearless predictions for the strength fortress winning team strength fortress oh really that's yeah, boring I um i reckon he's fucking stacked the team with three guys from nationals and there's not a single other person from nationals lifting yeah cool jp all right someone's salty well i'm gonna tell jp to open with what i think his thirds should be maybe he'll bomb he won't team Hayes, you're, but you're on my team and he won't listen to you yeah true actually <laughs> I mean, he knows better than I'm to gonna, listen to me actually you know what you should do because everyone knows that you're coaching him you should go to the tech table and change his openers that's a good idea or i could just make him sign up under team burke cripple the strength fortress cop a mad l myself because i only have one lifter it doesn't matter perfect perfect all right jp you're now under team burke if you have the time to listen to this sucked in we'll just pay the referees to give him reds <laughs> all right we'll have a quick break we got uh, a couple more topics to cover weekly weights welcome back to episode 34 of weekly weights oh actually more imp- more important update i don't want to ruin this in case it comes in before this episode in which case it wouldn't have been ruined. This is a surprise. I don't know what's I don't know what's coming. Yeah, Alex is everybody strap yourselves in. Look at I'm this on text the I just got edge Alex. Of my feet. See. Oh yeah. 
Locko McDonald, aka Locko McRonald, aka Locko.McD on Instagram, the man who put together our jingles, has just sent me a text while we've been talking saying, I think it's time for an updated capital letters jingle. We should um, give him the one, give him the lyrics to the one that Matt, the one that Matt made. I didn't like that. That was a diss track on me. That was fun. No, he said something about me as well. Yeah, but it was mostly, it was saying you were tired from punching above your weight and that I'm a loser. That's definitely flattering to you and a diss well, we, on me. We can, we can make it equally, equally dissy. No, I'd rather talk ourselves up, man. I'm sick of being self-deprecating. People keep telling me, hey, Will, don't talk yourself down. You're a fucking legend. And I say, I know. Let's talk about our last couple of topics for today. So, Alex, you had, you'd written down a couple of things about competitions that you wanted to say. Jesus. Uh, all right. Um, I think the first thing, and I actually have this written down in another topic, but it is that I used to believe that every competition was of equal priority and that there should be like a quote-unquote peak for every competition that we do. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's the case now. In fact, I don't think that's the case at all anymore. Um, if you've listened to episode 29, Long-Term Development, you'll know that we believe the better that you get the sort of less priority you should put on every single competition and the more you should sort of have those sort of peaks and highs and lows, I guess, in pushing yourself throughout the year to ensure that you are able to continually progress long-term. Um, so that's the first thing is that every competition doesn't have to be a big priority. You don't have to push yourself to the limit to get the most out of every competition because at the end of the day, it's not all that important. Can I just interrupt you? Yes. What was that song that the chick goes I used to believe at the start of do you know what I'm talking about no I'm gonna find it now because it's literally the theme for this song only because of that one lyric I don't know what the rest of it's about it might be Let Me Love You by DJ Snake I used to believe we were burning on the edge of something beautiful something beautiful selling it. that sounds like it DJ Snake Let Me Love You yeah Justin Bieber feet DJ Snake Let Me Love You 100% theme for this episode Sorry, Alex, you can keep going with the actual content. The next part of the stuff I've changed my mind in regarding to competition is um, weight classes and weight cutting. So I always used to try and get all my lifters to be as competitive as possible for every competition they would do. I guess this kind of goes in hand in hand with the last part of every competition is as important as the next one and every single competition is of the highest priority. Um, so you should be peaking for every competition, you should be cutting if you can to make weight for every competition and you should try and be as competitive as you can obviously my thoughts on that have changed um what are your thoughts on that will and yeah. how have your thoughts on that changed too yeah so i think like basically agree it's not often we flat disagree it's really boring we need to have like i in we disagree on things that are not powerlifting but i think we need to find a couple of real points of contention and have a debate one time and just, no, because I'm not good at debating. I'm going to go and full ad hominem. You'll win even if you're wrong. Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> I'll be, I'll be just like, no, you, no, you, <laughs> when you talk. Um, yeah, I, no, you. <laughs> I fully agree. Um, and I think it's again, it just comes back to me thinking everything should be hard. You should always test yourself. I used to find it really silly to think of like going to a competition just to lift and try and get nine for nine and take a two and a half kilo pb even if you had 10 kilos there um that's something i've softened on a little bit i still think sometimes some people's disposition is such that they're, like, they're just gonna like really going balls out at a comp and i'm fine with that 
Um, that's women included who want to go balls out, by the way. I'm fine with that, but... Flaps yeah. out. <laughs> My God. <laughs> um, yeah, I... <laughs> Yeah, I used to very much feel like competition is where you go really hard. And I wasn't like pro missing lifts, but I was like, if you miss a lift because you overshot by two and a half kilos, then like YOLO, that's what you're there for. Whereas now I'm like, no, you're actually there to like make your lifts and do better than last time. And if you're in competition, actual competition, you're there to win. Yeah. Even if that means taking less than you had. So I guess I've become a bit more rounded in my views on that. Um, so yeah, agree in that respect. Do you want to hear just the start of Let Me Love You by Justin Bieber feat DJ Snake? Sure. All right. Banger. I actually don't know this song. I think this might be it. It's got a serious intro. (laughs) Here we go. It's coming now. No, it's not. Wow. This might be a remix. It's the Weekly Way It's remix. Do you reckon we can get done for copyright? Probably. Oh, it's a karaoke version. That's why. Oh my god. (laughs) It's some of the best Weekly Wade's content ever. (laughs) And Will considers himself to be the smart one of the two of us. Yeah, it doesn't really say much for you, bro. Sorry. Oh, peaceful. All right, right, play on. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think back in back in you know when i first started coaching my competition plans were very concrete it was like the third was going to be like an was supposed to be an all-out grind and that's what i wanted i wanted to you know not have anyone leave anything in the tank and i felt like if they did a third attempt and it, you know they had two and a half or five in the tank that that was like that was a failure and that, that was a mistake whereas now i consider like yeah if i want them to have two and a half or five in the tank every time um, yeah, and move on to the next lift, move on to bench, and then move on to deadlift. Yeah, that's something Matt Bartholomew has said to me. Uh, I think he mentioned it on the podcast, but he said it to me in private a few times. Is with his lifters, it's like if between their first comp and like their fourth comp, their numbers on the platform progress, and they never once feel like they're anywhere near capacity. Like they always feel like they have ten kilos left or whatever, but their numbers progress. That's still awesome because like they're still getting better. Definitely getting like low pressure competition experience and that's something i think i particularly undervalued when i started i still do think it's hard to get buy-in from people to do to like really undersell themselves at comps because people build up powerlifting competition when they're training as being like the culmination of their training which it is and so they want to actually see what they can do um but yeah i'm very much of the opinion that like if somebody just surprises me by pulling a third that's easier than than perhaps i expect the third attempt to be um that's still good that, for me but to me that's the best thing possible because you've pe- you've prepped them for a certain number and if they completely obliterate that number that's great it means that they only had to train to what you expected them to do you know 10 or 15 kilos less than what they were capable of so next time you can prep them for 10 or 15 kilos more and they can do 20 kilos more yeah 100% and like my client that I coached on the weekend Jess shout out Jess who pulled 125 on her third deadlift. And you saw the video oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. that was good. She could have pulled 135. Yep. Maybe. I mean, who knows? If I put 135 on, she might have freaked out and not lifted it. But like, yeah, that's very encouraging to see. But like, I still do think, you know, when when people go to a comp and want to test themselves, if they happen to really test themselves and it's hard, that's fine. 
but I'm, that's not necessarily the goal for me which is the point now is like the goal is for them to make their lifts and do better than they did before yeah we want to instill the idea that you are as good as your total and if you put that mindset on the competition before you start and you aim to have the biggest total that's going to require you to make the most amount of lifts Mm. And if you take it one lift at a time and you make sure that you make all your lifts, you will have the biggest total. Yeah, shout out to JP again. I was joking with him this week that I could change my Instagram bio. You know how those people have like their lifts in their Instagram bio, which I personally think is a little bit lame. Do you do that? Yeah, I have that. Sucked in. Um, Yeah, I think that's a little bit lame. (laughs) But like if you do it, cool. And so what I was thinking was like I could change my total to be like squat 250 and then have like two red lights and a white light next to it. And then like bench 140, brackets, gym, TNG question mark and then like deadlift 300 nearly question mark deadlift like, 300 deadlift yeah. bar yeah exactly like you know have that because deadlift 300 to the knee yeah exactly <laughs> um, yeah you know if your mindset going into competition is basically like if I miss nearly I've still got a gauge of how strong I am you're actually missing the point like what you want to do is lift the most that you can and yeah if there's a little bit there in the tank then that all that means is there's more for next time yeah um, I guess when um, I was making plans for my lifters, the plan would always be like, what do I think the most they could do is? And that would be like the lofty third. Whereas now I think like, what's the least they can definitely do? And that's their third. Yes. With like a five kilo buffer. Yeah. And then you're always pleasantly surprised if you're surprised. Well, usually you're pleasantly surprised if you're surprised. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Periodically, people really, really disappoint you. (laughs) Shout it. Like Rufus on the weekend. (laughs) I heard about that. Nah. Nah, That's unfortunate. I was sad. Yeah, uh, Jules told me you were really sad. You were probably as sad as he was about that. I was more sad than he was. (laughs) I actually saw Lara today, which is Rufus' girlfriend, and she was like, Oh, Rufus had moved on and he was telling me that you were still so sad and like you loved powerlifting so much that you were so sad. You were more sad than the lifter. What happened is Rufus missed his third bench press at least partly on execution and then his back kind of cramped up and that that smacked him around for deadlifts, right? Yeah, his back spasmed and then he was like struggling with his deadlift warm-ups. Yeah, so that sucks for Rufus. Um, But I think, you know, any sane person would probably get up on Monday morning and go to their job and be like oh well you know didn't have the best day of my hobby whereas alex is still losing sleep he was messaging me at like 2 a.m this morning alex being like will i just can't get over it like why and he didn't even tell me what he was talking about and i knew what he was talking about i never lose sleep will you should know that yeah actually alex could sleep 23 hours a day and only wake up to just adjust his pillow i reckon yeah sleeping's fine what's your spirit animal sloth Sloth. yeah (laughs) both said it simultaneously what's mine um stallion <laughs> what's well, like the most cowardly animal um armadillo why do you say armadillo well i reckon they're kind of cool that was the main reason but also like they just curl up into a little ball and they have armor what do you reckon no yeah they're like- probably stallion Maybe pangolin. They're like a cool armadillo. Have you seen them? I'm trying to think of like a, a really shit animal. What's a really shit? You're like a bin chicken. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. I reckon we've probably gotten through Just all the really substance. annoying. <laughs> we've gotten through all the substance of this episode. Do you have anything that you um, actually want to add? Oh, um, comp mindset and in regards to like psych up and chilling out and stuff. I used to always consider, like, I always used to, I always used to think that, like, the more psyched up you could get, the better. 
Mm. Whereas now, obviously, I don't think that. Yeah, it's the optimum arousal curve. Correct. Yep. All right. Um, yeah, we've spoken about. Hmm? That was a quick one. Yeah, peaceful. All right. Um, what do you reckon? Um, I like. I'm personally. I'm not done. Right, I could always talk more right, specifically about me. Right into the show about what kind of apparel you would like us to have. Yeah. So what we are going to do is we're going to do like a weekly weights logo. So we're just going to have the like standard logo shirt with the little one on the chair, on the breast and then the big one on the back. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have a weekly weights dog shirt called Don't Dog the Boys. No, it's just called the Dog and the Boys shirt because it's our dog's faces on our face. Yeah. That's why it's Dog and the Boys because like, we're making the boys dogs. So Dog the Boys. Yeah, dog the Boys. So we're yeah. going to have the Dog the Boys shirt. So that's two shirts. And then we're going to have the um, the long and short sock package which is like a deadlift sock and a crew sock. Yeah. Um, let us know if you want us to do anything else, like hats or like beanies or like whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm of a mind to start with just a couple of shirts, see what the people like, and then we can have our winter apparel range next like next year. Ho- hoodies. Yeah. And remember when we were talking like a couple of weeks ago about who would be the best person to release powerlifting apparel? I know we haven't spoken about this in depth, but I reckon we source it from Lululemon. What do you think? No. All right, fine. Well, we'll probably just have to do JB's wear like everyone else, I guess. Oh, the AS color ones are the best, bro. All right, we'll figure something out. Anyway, um, that's the end of this episode. I'm Will. You can find me on Instagram at w.berkmanpt. I'm Alex. You can find me on Instagram at alexhayes underscore lift. What's your residential address? Uh, it's 47 Coolowin Road. That's not even my residential. You've literally just sent people to the Murnahan's house. Shout out, Murnahan's. <laughs> What's um, your, is yours 43? I'm not telling. Doesn't matter. It's 43 Coolman Road. (laughs) 2063. See you all next week. (laughs)